9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio, one of our Agenda 2021 conversations in which we look forward to the agenda that the United States is going to need to adopt should we have a new president come January. We're very fortunate to be joined uh, by a friend of this uh, podcast uh, and one of the really great public servants that the United States has had over the course of the past several decades. Leon Panetta has served as Secretary of Defense, as Director of the CIA, as White House Chief of Staff, as Director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, and um, as I met him first a long time ago as a member of Congress, um, and uh, uh, it's great to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us. Uh, good to be with you, David. Uh, I, I always enjoy the opportunity. Well, um, I, I appreciate that. I have to say, uh, you know, recently the conversations have not uh, not always been on the most enjoyable subjects. I'd like to start with one directly from the news of the past week uh, that touches upon some of uh, your several areas of experience, and that is uh, the revelation in an Axios interview that the President of the United States has had yet another conversation with Vladimir Putin in which he did not bring up the bounty that the Russians put on U.S. troops in Afghanistan, or the fact that the Russians had been supplying the Taliban with arms. Uh, And Trump not only said he didn't bring it up, but he compounded it by saying, you know, his his usual sort of many people uh, don't necessarily believe this is true. And once again, essentially taking the word of Vladimir Putin over that of the intelligence community. Uh, So this is a kind of a blow and an unimaginable one in the past to U.S. troops, to the uh, Department of Defense, and to the intelligence community, and I was wondering what your reaction was. Well, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very hard to try and understand a commander-in-chief uh, who is responsible for the lives of our men and women in uniform who are putting their lives on the line uh, in order to protect this country. Uh, And we have a commander-in-chief who has intelligence that the Russians uh, have have been placing uh, bounties on the heads of our men and women in uniform uh, so that if the Taliban goes after them, they'd earn additional pay from the Russians. Uh, and in the face of that kind of, of really, you know, it, it's the kind of information that makes you shudder, particularly for me as Secretary of Defense, because I had to uh, look into the faces of the, you know, the relatives of those who lost loved ones uh, and try to comfort them uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, their loved ones were putting their lives on the line 
for this country. To now have a president of the United States not be willing to tell our adversary, Russia, Vladimir Putin, uh, that this is unacceptable and that the United States will not tolerate this. Uh, and that should it happen, the United States will take actions against Russia. Uh, to not be able to say that to Vladimir Putin basically has our commander in chief sending a message of weakness to our key adversary that somehow he will not even raise an issue in which the Russians clearly, this is, this is Putin's playbook to use these kinds of bounties uh, on foreign troops. Uh, he's done it before and he's gonna continue to do it. But the message that our commander in chief is sending to Putin is keep doing it because I'm not going to tell you not to. Uh, I think that is, uh, that's an advocation of the duty of a commander in chief to protect our forces. Well, just to, to dive a little more deeply from a different aspect of your experience, from, from your experience um, at the CIA, it's also once again a, a repudiation of the perspectives offered up by the intelligence community. Um, how demoralizing is that to the intelligence community? Um, how dangerous is it to the way that we, that we consume or view intelligence? Well, I've, I've always believed that uh, for any leader to be able to make uh, the right decisions uh, for this country, particularly when it comes to national security, uh, that it's critical that they have the very best intelligence uh, as to what our adversaries are up to. Uh, that's true for commanders in the field. It's true for uh, a second lieutenant who is leading a platoon. Uh, it's true for the president of the United States. Uh, that presidents cannot make uh, decisions regarding our national security unless they have uh, the very best intelligence on what our adversaries are up to. From the very beginning, uh, this president has questioned that intelligence. Uh, he went to the CIA and uh, questioned that intelligence. Uh, he stood next to Vladimir Putin at Helsinki uh, and in probably one of the most disturbing statements, uh, certainly for me as a former CIA director, to have the President of the United States standing next to the head of Russia uh, and saying that he trusted Russian intelligence more than he trusted our own intelligence. To, to have said that, uh, tremendously demoralizing to the people involved in our intelligence. And now to uh, refuse to uh, accept intelligence that bounties are being placed on the heads of men and women in uniform. Uh, this is a president who clearly does not want all of the information that he should have in order to make those decisions because when the intelligence community tells him uh, that the Russians are up to something and then he refuses to confront the Russians on that issue, uh, what it means is that the president doesn't want to know the truth. He doesn't want to know the truth. He doesn't want to hear the truth. 
And what he's literally doing is he's crippling himself as commander-in-chief uh, in order to uh, placate the Russians for some unknown reason that all of us are trying to figure out. Why would he do this? Uh, what, what do the Russians have on him uh, that somehow uh, obligates him not to confront them on these kinds of issues? But what, when you have somebody who's, who is doing that, uh, there is no other conclusion you can come to but that he is jeopardizing our national security by his refusal to pay attention to that kind of intelligence. Let me ask you one more question on this before we move on, and that has to do with the fact that the president does this, and it, the Secretary of Defense does not say, I have a problem with it. The director of the CIA does not say, I have a problem with it. Now, I don't know anybody who's served in more of these senior-level positions than you have. And there is a certain ethic to serving a commander-in-chief. But that ethic requires at a certain point to speak out. And, and what's your view of the comparative silence of these senior officials in light of these events? Well, it is, it's, uh, it's a pattern in this administration. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of good people come and go. Uh, you know, whether uh, it was uh, Kelly as uh, chief of staff, Mattis as secretary of defense, uh, uh, others, uh, you know, McMaster's. Uh, we've had some good people that have left uh, because the president, uh, <laughs> the president didn't want to hear the truth from them, uh, and as a result, they lost their jobs. And so, people who are remaining in the administration. Uh, basically have learned to keep their mouth shut uh, for fear that if they raise uh, objections to what the president is doing, uh, that it's only a matter of time before their, their job is uh, in jeopardy. Uh, that's not healthy. It's not a healthy situation. I mean, first of all, presidents, in order to be effective, have to be willing to listen to those around them who may disagree with what that president has said or done. You got to be willing to do that as president of the United States, uh, because that's the way. That's the way you get to the truth. Uh, and when you refuse to accept the truth, when you don't want to hear your closest advisors tell you something that you, you may not like to hear. Uh, and so you shut it down or you uh, go after those that tell you the truth. Then what it does is it sends, again, a signal to all of the good people that may be working in government. Uh, to keep your mouth shut. Uh, move the stuff from the inbox to the outbox. But for goodness sakes, don't rise up and try to challenge this president. Now, you know, I do have to give credit to uh, Secretary of Defense and to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs that when, when uh, the president tried to politicize uh, the forces at, at Lafayette Park uh, and uh, in order for him to have a photo op with a Bible, uh, that they were willing to stand up and say that was a mistake. Uh, so that's important. And... You know, I, I hope that they continue to stand up to the president when he 
ask them to do something that is not in line with our Constitution. It is critical in the end. I mean, I know you have to compromise your position a number of times uh, on a lot of issues, but when it comes to the fundamental issue of whether or not you're going to stick to the terms of the Constitution, uh, you damn well better open your mouth. Well, right. People, people serve the Constitution. They take an oath to the Constitution, not to the president. Um, one more item from the news of the week, and then we'll move on sort of with a look towards the agenda that a new president might assume. Uh, the president, Secretary of Defense, announced this week a decision to draw down troops in Germany. Uh, this uh, has produced a, a lot of discomfort among former commanders of European forces in Europe. Uh, there seems to be a kind of uh, vindictiveness here. The president cited Germany's unwillingness to pay its NATO dues, even though, as, as we know, there, there are no NATO dues. That's a, it's a fallacy that he keeps coming back to. Um, and, uh, you know, this is hugely costly. But, you know, going back to the first point with regard to Putin, this is Putin's ultimate dream, right? This, you know, pulling, withdrawing down U.S. forces that were positioned initially to counterbalance Russian and, and previously to that Soviet influence in Europe um, has to be viewed as, you know, it was one of the top objectives of Russian foreign policy. How do you view it? Well, again, it, it brings us back to the fundamental point that uh, Russia is an adversary. They've been an adversary since the end of World War II. Uh, we went through the Cold War with the Russians. Uh, and as somebody who's been involved in intelligence and on defense issues, uh, there's no question in my mind that the principal goal of the Russians is, is to undermine the United States of America, to weaken us. That's their fundamental goal. Uh, and so when the president of the United States uh, is not willing to support our NATO alliance and has weakened our NATO alliance, uh, by being critical of that alliance and clearly sending a message that, uh, you know, he was not going to be a strong partner in the NATO alliance. Uh, he's sending a message to the Russians that uh, we're not going to continue uh, to check them. And I think what Putin has done in the last few years, probably began a little bit even in the last administration, is that the president, the president of Russia has gotten a signal uh, that spells weakness on the part of the United States and that he's going to take advantage of it. And so he went into the Crimea, he went into the Ukraine, uh, he went into Syria, uh, and basically, in many ways, uh, had the United States uh, surrendering Syria to Iran and Russia. Uh, the Russians have conducted uh, this interference in our election process, uh, and uh, the president has not really condemned the Russians 
for their continuing efforts to influence our election. Uh, and so on area after area, uh, the Russians have said the United States is weak. Uh, they will not confront us. Trump is not going to confront uh, Putin on any of these issues. So the message is uh, they're going to take advantage of it. Now, uh, withdrawing these uh, critical troops in Germany uh, that are a critical part of our NATO commitment, very frankly. I mean, they're an important check. We've, we've had troops uh, in Germany, uh, you know, since the end of World War II. Uh, and we've had other bases uh, throughout Europe. And the fundamental purpose of those bases and those troops is to support the NATO alliance. And it's represented a bulwark against uh, Russia. Uh, and so now the president is handing the Russians another gift uh, by gradually withdrawing those troops from Germany. Now, you know, supposedly this is about a pout uh, with uh, Chancellor Merkel uh, because uh, they're not putting up enough money. Uh, excuse me, uh, the purpose of the NATO alliance, purpose of the NATO alliance is that all of these allies work together to make clear to the Russians that uh, Europe and the United States will stand together uh, and refuse any effort by the Russians uh, to be able to uh, go after a NATO country. Uh, and that's been a very important signal. I think it was that alliance that basically brought down uh, the Berlin Wall uh, and uh, undermined uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, there are a lot of different partners that are part of our alliance. I mean, we, we deal with all kinds of allies. Some are putting up, uh, you know, their full share. Some are not. But they are providing troops. They're providing equipment. They are exercising with us uh, with, uh, with regards to NATO. They're fulfilling their responsibilities. And so now to kind of take this uh, pouting position that uh, since the Germans aren't paying their full share, we're going to pull these troops out. That's like basically saying, you know, it's that, uh, uh, that one scene where uh, the sheriff put the gun to his head and said, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to shoot myself in the head. This is the United States not hurting Russia. And not hurting Germany, for that matter, but hurting the United States in terms of our word, our trust, and our commitment as an ally in NATO. Well, absolutely right. And, of course, we know that this Russian effort um, and this Russian testing of American presidents uh, began actually in 2008 under Bush in Georgia. And it has included Syria and Ukraine under Obama, and it has included uh, further steps in Ukraine and Syria and elsewhere under Trump. And that's a real vector of threat. Chinese have, over the course of, of, of the past four years, dramatically invested in their military capability and 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 again, taken advantage of American retreat with very aggressive actions against their own people, uh, uh, in, including in Hong Kong and and aggressive actions in uh, uh, South China Sea, uh, Straits of Taiwan. Uh, and as you look around the world, we see a variety of threats. And 
among the greatest threats we see for the United States are internal threats. Saw the economic data today, the worst uh, quarterly contraction in U.S. history, the worst unemployment crisis in U.S. history. Um, assume for a moment, um, and, 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 and I'm not suggesting anybody become complacent, but just for the purposes of this exercise, that come the end of January, the president is, is Joe Biden. And he faces a plethora of demands. Where, where do I start? Where, what do I undo that Trump did first? What about our alliances? What about our treaties? What about the budget? What about protecting the environment and so forth? What do you think the, the, the critical priorities are from the point of view of national security? Well, <laughs> you've, uh, you've presented, obviously, the, uh, the full picture of uh, what we're facing today uh, in the United States, which is unprecedented. I think I, you know, I've been in public life uh, 50 years. I have never seen uh, the kind of challenges that this country is facing today. Uh, certainly in the 50 years that I've been involved in, in public service. Uh, we're facing uh, problems with uh, COVID-19, uh, which is out of control uh, and impacting across the country, I mean, 150,000 dead, uh, and no national strategy, no national strategy to deal with it. Uh, we've got a president who's basically running away from this issue uh, crossing his fingers and hoping that somehow, you know, it'll take care of itself uh, without any kind of leadership. Uh, we've got a, a, an economy now. Uh, the, these numbers that have just come out with regards to uh, the impact on our GDP um, is, uh, you know, we, we have an, a, an economy that uh, is crashing right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we see a large number of unemployed. We see what's happening with businesses. Uh, you know, this, this is an economy that is not going to rapidly turn around. This is going to be with us for a while. So the next president is going to have to deal with that as well. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, you know, obviously everything going on with regards to concerns about uh, racial inequality, the ability to try to deal with the inequality, sometimes uh, emphasized really through the COVID-19 situation in terms of its impact. Uh, and we have this crisis of leadership in this country where a president doesn't want to confront these issues. He's not addressing these issues. He's not like any other president that in, in facing crisis, I mean, leadership is defined by crisis, let's face it. And here we have crisis after crisis after crisis and no leadership to confront. Uh, and then add to that uh, the issues we've been talking about in terms of national security, because we have a president that basically has withdrawn from U.S. leadership in the world uh, and left a vacuum uh, that Russia and China and other adversaries are taking advantage of uh, and undermine our alliances uh, in, in the process. So president, a new president of the United States, uh, look, first and foremost, I think has to make clear that we're going to, as the United States, we're going to return to the values that the United States is all about. I think 
I think it's important for a new president like Biden to embrace the values that we think are important in the presidency of the United States, which is to be honest with the American people, to have a moral fiber as to what's right and wrong, uh, and to work to unify this country. Uh, those are those are fundamental needs for the president of the United States. So I, I think a president who kind of sends that message about embracing those basic values is very important. Secondly, uh, I think that the president's going to have to do what this president has failed to do on COVID-19, which is develop a national strategy to confront it, because this thing's going to be with us. Even if we have a, have a vaccine uh, at the end of the year, the reality is it will not, uh, there's, no good, there's not going to be a miracle here. Uh, this is going to take time. Uh, and we're going to continue to feel the impact of it. So I think a national strategy that says we are in this together, we are unified, and the federal government is going to provide what is necessary to the states in terms of testing uh, and support and health care, uh, we're going to provide that. That's something that should have been done a long time ago. I mean, this president really missed the boat. I mean, it, it, you know, if he was really interested in, in somehow being reelected, his failure to in any way step up and deal with this crisis. I mean, for me, is you know, case closed as far as whether or not this presidency has failed. Uh, there's no question it has failed. So uh, a new president's going to have to develop that strategy. Uh, I think dealing with the health care issue will in many ways help our economy resurrect. That's the, I mean, the two are related. But I also think you're going to have to provide the support system to try to get uh, businesses and people back to work. Uh, and provide the jobs that are necessary to get it back to work. So I guess I would say to, to Joe Biden, number number one, you know, restore those values. Number two, deal with these principal problems that are weakening weakening the United States at home, weakening our democracy. And then I think, without question, and I think Joe Biden will do this, he'll send a clear message to the world: the United States believes in world leadership, and that we will restore our alliances. We will restore our relationship with our allies, and we will recognize who our adversaries are uh, with regards to Russia, with regards to China, with regards to Iran, with regards to North Korea. Uh, we understand who the bad players in the world are, and we're not going to play footsie with them. Uh, and we're not going to somehow allow these authoritarian governments to kind of have their own way. Uh, that's going to be a, a message that will be sent from the president, but also through uh, hopefully a State Department and a Defense Department that will get back to the work that they, they should be doing, which is uh, the work of not only protecting our country, but also extending a diplomatic arm to the rest of the world. Is there an institutional component to this? I, I guess this makes me sound wonky, but, you know, we have a, tens of thousands of listeners who are, you know, avowed wonks. And, 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 on a, and that's got two components. You know, there's the Paris Accord, which we stepped out of. There is TPP, which we avoided. There is the Iran Nuclear Accord, which we have stepped out of. There's the INF deal with the Russians that we've stepped out of. Uh, there's a strategic arms deal that expires in February. Uh, and at the same time, there are these alliances, both NATO, which doesn't just need to be re-engaged with. It actually needs to be rethought and reimagined for a new era. Uh, there, you know, are emerging alliances, you know, in the case of China, China balancing them with 
say the quad, you know, coming up with new formulas to counterbalance them in the Pacific. So, you know, do you see that this is sort of a present at the creation 2.0 moment where one of the things the United States has got to do if it's going to lead is reimagine the international system? No, I, I don't think there's any question uh, that we, we've got to be imaginative in how do, we, uh, how do we continue to provide that important leadership in the world and how do we build the alliances that are critical to be able to uh, protect peace and prosperity in the world. Uh, and it really does mean that uh, we've got to, in many ways, rebuild our own foreign policy approach uh, to dealing with these challenges. Look, if, there, if there's anything Russia and China do not like, it is alliances. They don't, they don't have alliances. They don't build alliances. Uh, and the one thing they hate is when the United States and other allies come together to confront them. So what does that tell you? It tells you that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. So when it comes to Europe, he's got to rebuild NATO. Uh, and as you said, I think you've got to refashion NATO in terms of its mission. I mean, we, we took some steps obviously, to use NATO uh, in the war against terrorism. But I think, I think NATO can be a hell of a lot more flexible in terms of how we approach threats in that part of the world and elsewhere. I think we've got to build new alliances uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the ASEAN countries are, you know, a rich area. Uh, their economies are, 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 are going to continue to grow. The ability to build a new alliance in that part of the world to basically confront China, I think would be critical to our ability to check them. I think we've got to build those alliances in Latin America and Central America again. We've, we always ignore our allies in that part of the world. We have for a long time. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to do that. We've got to uh, build new alliances uh, in Africa and uh, North Africa. In the Middle East, you know, frankly, our ability to build a new alliance made up of moderate Arab countries and Israel to confront terrorism, to confront Iran, I think would be a key to, to a whole new Middle East strategy uh, in that part of the world. So, yeah, there, there, are, there are a number of steps that have to be taken. And what you've had is a president who's basically torn, torn up all of the areas where we had made some progress. I mean, torn up the climate uh, agreement, torn up uh, the trade agreements, torn up the arms control agreements without any strategy. I mean, that's the biggest problem, frankly, uh, I've seen with regards to this president. I mean, I, he operates by chaos. He loves chaos. And, you know, there's, there's, you could argue that chaos can play a role in terms of foreign affairs. But the only way it, you can, it can play a role is if you have a strategy for what you do after chaos. This president has no strategy. He's never thought uh, comprehensively about what do you do uh, after you tear up uh, an agreement on climate change, after you tear up the trade agreement in Southeast Asia, after you tear up the Iran uh, nuclear arms agreement, after you tear up uh, these arms control agreements. There is no strategy. And so 
Joe Biden, a new president, is going to have to develop strategies to basically say, how is the United States going to approach these issues for the future? And that's what you do. I mean, I, you know, that's what presidents are supposed to do. They're supposed to say, what, what is the United States going to be like, not today, but in the next five to 10 years? And to put us on a path where we can move towards, again, making the 21st century, not the century of China, but the century of the United States. That's what, this new, that's what another president is going to have to do. I totally agree. Now, we're a little, almost out of time. Let me ask you one more question, if I may, um, that draws also on a different part of your experience, because both on the Hill and in the White House, you've, you've been a master of the budget. And when we look at the defense budget, um, we have a lot of talk about it, and Trump says he's spending more than anybody has ever spent on defense. And you know, in, in incremental terms, I, I, I suppose that's true. But, but the reality is that year in and year out, since Dwight Eisenhower warned about the growth of the military-industrial complex, it's gotten bigger and bigger. The budget's gotten bigger and bigger. Um, and, you know, there has never been a serious discussion about what we can sacrifice. And when you get to a country that's at a moment like this country is, where we haven't invested in infrastructure in 50 years, where our healthcare system is lagging behind, our education system is lagging behind, where we need to invest in R&D, in a rational world, we'd stop and say, we have any flexibility in this budget. But it's almost you know, it's, 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 it's kind of the third rail in politics. If somebody comes in and says, I'm going to cut the defense budget, then people say, well, you're, you know, you're done. You're not a serious person. Well, you've been in all of these jobs. You've had this perspective. What do you think we ought to be doing when it comes to defense budgeting? Well, in many ways, it raises the question, what are we going to do about the budget? <laughs> Because, uh, you know, for the last, last four years, uh, we've basically ignored any kind of discipline in the budget uh, and have been basically playing the game of, uh, you know, kicking the can down the road. And now, uh, in the process of trying to address this COVID crisis, you know, we've thrown trillions of dollars at the problem. We've got, uh, we'll have a deficit this year of about $3.7 trillion, and that's before the next package. Right? So, you know, we could likely have uh, a deficit that runs almost uh, $6, 7000000000000 trillion, an annual <laughs> deficit. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, we shouldn't obviously uh, spend the money we need in order to restore our economy. That's important to do. But I also think that both the President and the Congress are going to have to look to the future as to what do we do in order to restore some discipline here? Because we cannot run uh, this size debt that we're running now, which is going to be in excess of 100% of GDP. Uh, it's going to, that, will, that will undermine the economy in the future, and we'll be passing on a huge debt to our kids. So what I would say to a new president is uh, put in place 
a process that develops a strategy for the next five to 10 years in order to gradually restore uh, fiscal discipline to our budget. And the reason I say that is because every area of the budget is going to have to be addressed. Defense, yes. Non-defense, yes. Uh, entitlements, yes. Revenues, yes. That all has to be part of it. But if you, if you do it in a comprehensive way, then it's not as if you, you say, well, we're just going to get it out of defense or we're just going to get it out of the wealthy. I mean, the problem is we've got to look at every aspect of the budget right now and discipline. And if you put that kind of comprehensive you know, approach together, I think defense can, uh, in fact, uh, find savings without jeopardizing our national security. I mean, good Lord, we have cost overruns in all of these weapon systems. We have duplication. Uh, there, are, there are ways we can tighten up uh, what, uh, what we do at the Defense Department. Uh, in addition to that, frankly, we should be doing a lot more on hybrid war. We should be doing a lot more on cyber. We should be doing a lot more with regards to new technologies, unmanned systems. I mean, that is the future. Uh, and so there, there are ways to be able to get this done. And I think if you send that message to every aspect of our, of our budget and our economy, and everybody understands that we're all going to have to sacrifice a little bit, and we're all, we're all in this together. Then I think this country, you know, in five to 10 years might very well get back to uh, restoring some sense of discipline with regards to the budget that includes every area of the federal government. Are you, are you somebody who's ever entertained the idea of a capital budget as separate from an operating budget? Uh, we've talked about that when I was in the budget committee. Uh, we talked about that aspect. I, when I was at OMB, uh, I, there was a serious discussion about uh, doing that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's worth thinking about because uh, I think we, we have got to be imaginative as we do with regards to NATO. We're going to have to be damn imaginative about how we deal with our budget so that it makes sense uh, and that it isn't just, you know, a continuation of the same mistakes we've made in the past. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's one surefire way to restore budget discipline in all those free-spending Republicans, and that's to elect a Democrat president. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'll be, they'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll finally get back to, to, to a little bit of rigor. Um, hopefully we'll get there for a lot of good reasons. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back on here. Uh, to discuss that process, uh, I don't know of anybody else who's got as broad a perspective or who is as thoughtful about these things as you are. And I know that uh, every time that you join us, our, our, our uh, listeners benefit. So thank you very much. Stay healthy. Um, and uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, if you want to hear more of what we're doing with the Agenda 2021 program or regular programming, go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, look and see what we've got coming more like this. And uh, while you're there, if you want to become a member, it's easy to do. The DSRnetwork.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Secretary Panetta. Thank you, David. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I, I wish your listeners well. And uh, I wish you and, and everyone, please stay well, because we're going to have a hell of a lot of work to do in these next few years. <laughs> 
<laughs> no question. No question about that. Thanks. Thank, thanks very much. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>